the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an honor to have William K. Riley in the house. He's well-known and admired as a highly consequential leader on environment and energy matters in the U.S. and the world. President George H.W. Bush tapped him to serve as the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency with cabinet rank. He also served as president of the World Wildlife Fund. William Riley has been called upon by presidents of both major political parties to take on important public tasks requiring judgment and discretion. That's always a tribute, but in today's polarized circumstances, it's extraordinary. William Riley, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And that nice introduction. William Riley, you have been, to use Dean Asheson's phrase, present at the creation of the modern environmental era. How did you happen to enter this endeavor? Well, I was uh, working for a group called uh, Urban America Incorporated. When I left the Army and completed a, an urban planning course at Columbia, I went to Washington, and um, it turned out that the new Council on Environmental Quality, which was created on January 1st, 1970, and what President Nixon proclaimed was to be the decade of the environment, they uh, needed somebody to write land use law. They had uh, as their principal domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman. He was a land use lawyer himself. He was actually close to a man for whom I had worked, Dick Babcock, a very distinguished land use man in Chicago. Though, though Babcock was a Democrat and had been a manager of Adlai Stevenson's gubernatorial campaign, they got on very well as professionals in the same field. And he asked a question that I was later told, who should I get to write the national land use policy? And Babcock recommended me based upon my six or seven months service in his firm before I, after I graduated from law school and before I went into the army. So I found myself the third or I maybe the fourth hire at the new council on environmental quality. And I was given to draft any number of executive orders and um, to work on statutes to particularly draft what became the Coastal Zone Management Act, and before that, the National Land Use Policy Act. We used to joke that of all of the major statutes that emanated from the council, and many of them did, that Nixon signed, Congress passed, my land use bill was the one that failed. It passed as it failed by one vote in the House, and it was, a, it was an Arizona congressman who was mad at Nixon for Watergate. At any rate, I found myself there and I was asked to write the first regulations on environmental impact assessment. That was uh, this novel new feature of the law. And I did. And um, then I was pressed into service as a speechwriter for Leonard Garment, for George Schultz, for uh, uh, the president once, for the vice president once, and for my boss, Russell Train, regularly. I was not or didn't consider myself a speechwriter, but that's what I was doing in my sort of spare time. At any rate, uh, at the end of my second year, I guess it was, I was invited over to the White House and asked to become the principal issues speechwriter for the Nixon campaign, the uh, issues speechwriter with a speech requirement every two weeks or so. And I look back on that as an important turning point. If I had accepted that, I probably would have had a career something like David Gergens. I probably would have gone on in communications and, and writing. And uh, I turned it down. And I didn't turn it down because I wasn't for Nixon in the election against McGovern. Uh, but I thought it was going to be a nasty campaign. And um, 
and I and I also knew Gary Hart, who was the manager of the opposing of the McGovern campaign. He had worked for me a little bit on some projects at Urban America. So I turned it down and I took a job as the executive director of a task force on land use chaired by Lawrence S. Rockefeller and paid for by the Rockefeller brothers for a year and um, was recruited after that to become president of the Conservation Foundation. I have to say, Jim, nothing about this career was orderly organized or planned according to priorities. I, I think of the British Prime Minister Harold McMillan, McMillan, who was asked at some point how he determined his priorities, and he uh, replied, uh, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> so well, I took opportunities as it came along. My, my wife, Libby, has, has said to me, why don't you decide what you want to do sometime and then do it rather than waiting to find out if you're asked to do something? Well, each his own. Well, it is extraordinary, and it's clear that both through your skills and through the happenstance of fate, you happen to come of age right at the moment the modern environmental era was starting. That's an extraordinary thing. Your career could not be replicated. That is quite right. I, I did, and I uh, enjoyed the new focus of public attention on my issues, which was not true probably 10 years before. There was a conjunction between the uh, bird people, the animal people, the wildlife people on the one hand, and the health community on the other, which converged in pressure for a Clean Air Act that was going to address problems both of them felt were important. And that presaged a groundswell of, and finally communicated itself to the broader public in a very consequential way. And uh, those of us who were in government uh, really enjoyed that. I remember Bill Ruckelshaus telling me, who was the first administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, that, that uh, he would go up to Congress and they would ask him, well, what else would you like to do? Uh, what, what, do you need more money? <laughs> and is there something in the environment we haven't attended to? And he said it was just, uh, he found himself resisting uh, excess in terms of the convergence of the kinds of things that uh, that he might do as an environmentalist and running EPA, where he had plenty to do to administer the new statutes that he was responsible for. Well, let's talk about that Nixon White House for a moment. Uh, it's a time looking back, and I suppose at the time you were aware of this, that there was a tremendous amount of talent gathered together. You had on the environmental side, Russell Train, Al Alm, Bill Ruckel's house was connected to it, yourself, that you had Pat Moynihan, Dick Blumenthal, who both became senators, Tom Peters, the management thinker. What was that about? What was that like? It was a marvelous time to be doing things in the government that mattered to the president. And they mattered to the president because they mattered to the country. The country uh, let the president know in the 68 campaign, really, when he looked at polling data that indicated the three top issues of concern to the American people were the economy, the war in Vietnam, both logical and traditional, and uh, the environment. And seeing the environment that high on the index of public interest, he instructed John Ehrlichman and others in his entourage to get out front on the environment. And that explains why uh, we had so much freedom working in the White House. We had the full backing of the president and uh, we could do some things. Russell Train, my boss, had asked permission to hire Democrats. He said, we're likely to find that most of the interesting professionals in this field are Democrats because it's been a Democratic issue. And the president, president said, yes, Ehrlichman was fine with that. So it was an unusually bipartisan moment and opportunity. The Clean Air Act was a product of, of bipartisanship. So was the Clean Water Act. Nixon vetoed the first version of it for financial economic concerns, but uh, signed, happily signed the second. And the country believed in the environment. And, you know, the first Earth Day, uh, if you were not an environmentalist, you kept quiet about it. <laughs> well, let's please talk about Richard Nixon. He continues to hold a fascination on people, and, and it often has been striking to me how many very young people today who weren't even around when Richard Nixon was alive 
find him fascinating. He appeared on five national election ballots, the only person to do so other than Franklin Roosevelt. From the space of nearly half a century on, how do you evaluate Nixon and his administration and their historical significance? Nixon is a fascinating personality because there was a disjunction there between his personal interests and affections on the one hand, which were not at all sympathetic to environmentalists who he considered were anti-growthers, anti-authority, anti-government, anti-business, and his public posture, which was environmentalist and with some stirrings is about the importance of the environment, particularly that first speech in January of 1970 when he signed the the National Environmental Policy Act. He uh, either, in, in the minds of people who knew him, Bill Ruckelshaus is a good example, there are different attitudes. On the one hand, Ruckelshaus knew his private side, knew how resistant he was to environmental thinking. And uh, basically, I think, from his time as head of the FBI, later deputy attorney general, came to despise him. But um, he never gave him credit for what he did on the environment, because he, Ruckelshaus would say, well, he had no use for the environment as an issue, no particular interest in it. Interest was in foreign policy and some very important domestic achievements too. My own view is that uh, presidents deserve credit for what they in fact encourage and achieve. On that scale, I believe Nixon is the most consequential president for the environment in the, in the post-war period. He, uh, he did sign clean air, clean water, uh, clean drinking water, uh, waste legislation, Endangered Species Act legislation. It's astonishing. And it was when I was in office to go to an international conference and realize how much parentage there was for what was happening in the rest of the world 15, 20, 25 years later. Parentage of American experience, environmental impact assessment originated in the United States. The heritage sites was an idea put forward by Russell Train for the Nixon Council on Environmental Quality with the president's full support. And the list goes on. And the appointments, as you said, were really stunningly good. And um, I tried to persuade Ruckel's House of that. I said, he appointed you. I mean, doesn't he get a credit for that? <laughs> <laughs> and Bill said, no, he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> so, Watergate really uh, made it difficult to have an objective opinion of the other aspects and achievements of the president. But uh, but I uh, I certainly was there. And and I also had personal experience. I know uh, when when my boss took this state of the environment report, which the council was invited, was required statutorily to issue, and he took it over to President Nixon. He told me 25 years after the fact, and I'm glad he didn't tell me this when I was 30 and had just written it. The president looked at what I had written on land use and coastal zone management and said, who's the son of a bitch who wrote this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, train announced this at a conference inaugurating the new Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions at Duke University, which is by the board I chair, and, and Train mischievously pointed over to me. I was sitting on the platform with her and said, the SOB is sitting right over there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, and I, I recall also getting a telephone call one day from the White House saying that uh, I was asked to prepare a speech for the Detroit Economic Club an important speech for President Nixon, and it would be a speech in which he would uh, disavow or disparage the environment. And I went right downstairs and I told my boss, I was told not to tell my boss, but I told him immediately. And I said, I'm not going to write that speech. And he said, of course, you're going to write that speech. He said, think about it. They could have gone anywhere in the administration to get this speech. And they came here. They came to you specifically. He hmm. said, someone is looking out for us in the White House. They know you will write a speech we can live with. And I thought, well, there are levels of sophistication to which I have not yet arrived. And uh, I wrote the speech and it was all about reconciling environmental goals with economic objectives and doing so in a in a uh, an efficient way. And president delivered probably two or three paragraphs from the speech in the end that was uh, his his moods as um, Evan Thomas and others have said in biographies were highly variable. And um, 
they would go up and down and his attitudes and complaints would pass very often. And his Henry Kissinger told me last year in a conversation, he said the the important thing for an advisor to President Nixon to know was he did not mean everything he said. And he said the problem with Watergate is Colson thought that he did. And he said whether Colson purposely was trying to lure him into approving something Colson wanted to do or whether Colson really thought that Nixon was fine with uh, Watergate. He said, I don't know, but he said it never should have happened. If it had been Haldeman or me or Ehrlichman, we would have known to simply file that away as a as a momentary mood swing. Let's ask one more question to you about Richard Nixon. He stands almost as a, a touchstone for people to discuss the role of character in leadership. How do you think of him in that way? What is there that we should learn or think about, if anything, on Nixon and his personal character? From what we know, he had a a preoccupation with appearing strong, with uh, sort of a, a macho aspiration or ambition. And I really think that a lot of what he did that crossed over into unethical or um, hardly admirable behavior and remarks had to do with that aspect of his personality. He uh, he he felt somehow like an outsider. The uh, Evan Thomas biography is very good about explaining why that was and how in his first encounters with Washington society at a dinner that Joe Alsop gave, Averill Harriman discovered Nixon was sitting across from him and he got up and left the table. And uh, Nixon's name was mangled and some of the women were making fun of, of Pat's dress. And it was largely because they had been close friends, some of them, with Alger Hiss and with Helen Gahagan Douglas, whom Nixon had defeated in the California Senate. So when Nixon decided that uh, he needed to pay attention to the Washington Post and to Catherine Graham and to the people around her. Ben Bradley lived in Georgetown. Many of them did. She did. He uh, asked Henry Kissinger to be the emissary to them. And uh, according to, um, I've forgotten, I think it's, I, th I think it was actually Kissinger. Uh, the taping system was something he put in when he realized that Kissinger was ingratiating with some of Nixon's critics in ways that were very critical of him, and he suspected that that Kissinger would take credit for some of the major achievements, including the recognition of China, reconciliation with China, that really had been Nixon's idea before he even ran for president. Hmm. But that, um, so I, I don't, I don't deny those qualities that were that were there. I didn't have any personal interaction with him when when Ruckel's house uh, and I differed about him. It wasn't because I knew more than Bill, because Bill did did report to him and uh, was regularly in touch with him and had to be, and uh, nevertheless came away with that with that point of view. But I just I do believe that credit should go to a president for his achievements, the things that he fostered, the things that he got out of the way of in some cases, and the things that he took personal or political pleasure in pursuing and adding to his, his legacy. And in that respect, I think uh, he was a good environmental president. Well, before we turn to your great record at the US EPA, where you led the agency in a very important time, let's talk about how you came to be recognized as you were when you were chosen by the first President Bush. How does it, how were you, uh, trained or how did you learn to lead organizations putting together this sort of portmanteau of experiences that you were able to pull together at the beginning of this new field, the environment? Well, I was always to some degree an odd man out in the environmental movement because I was not anti-authority. I was not anti-business. In fact, the Conservation Foundation under my leadership was the first organization to have a program in business and the environment in which I simply made the pitch to corporate America that, look, you, you fought hard against the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act when they were under consideration. 
and you lost and you lost because 85% of the population, according to best polling data, believes these statutes are very important. And in fact, a good portion of those people believe they should be strengthened. So it's time to get involved. And it's true that there are inefficiencies with respect to the administration of any of these laws that you could help fix. And I think you really ought to engage these issues, recognizing these statutes are not going to go away. As Bob Teeter, the pollster for President George H.W. Bush said before the election in 1988, the environment has entered the DNA of the American public and it's going to stay there. So I, that was successful. We had the chemical industry, the forest products industry, and, uh, and the oil industry, all working on aspects of divisive issues that needed to be addressed, reconciled. The, I remember the chemical industry was despised when I took office, and as it had been for 10 years or more, they were associated with Superfund and Niagara Falls and other places where there had been very large amounts of toxic waste discovered, just disposed recklessly. And um, that really was my was my background. I said that when I was announced as as President Bush's EPA administrator. Why should business trust you? A reporter asked from the floor of the executive office building. And I said, because much of my life and career has been devoted to trying to make things work in a mutually satisfactory way between business, the environment and science. And uh, that was entirely fair to my own career. And I continued to try to do that when I was at EPA. Many young people might be surprised to recall that in 1988, President Bush carried California, for example. The politics of the country were very different. Time magazine, despite the fact that all the judges were earthlings, made Earth the planet of the year. There was a great environmental moment, and you were tapped to lead the agency at that time. Could you tell us a bit about that experience and what we might learn today from those politics? Well, I was asked by my board chairman, Russell Train, after he had vacationed with Bill Ruckelshaus in Florida and the Ruckelshaus family and Train family, what I would do if I were invited to be the EPA administrator under under uh, an elected President Bush. This was then the campaign was just starting. And I said I would I would turn it down. Why? I said, because based on his history, the regulatory work that he's done and taken credit for in the Reagan administration, I, I, I don't foresee him making the kind of environmental history that, that I would like to see. And Train said to me, well, given your history and career, it's very difficult to imagine you saying no to a president who offers you the top job. And I remember telling my wife, and she said, yep, it's, it's decided. You're going to the government. You're going to the <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, it might help if he won the election, if that's the case. But it turned out that I was recommended by Ruckelshaus and Train, both former EPA administrators and very distinguished ones. And that really was that was the origin of Bush's interest in me. And I, I really, um, I was, I guess, surprised because I didn't really know Bush. I had been with him twice. I'd lobbied him on something unsuccessfully once as vice president. And uh, I remember Train giving me advice. And Train was a very savvy person. And he said, Bill, you're going into an administration with no friends. He said, I know the people around the president. I know the budget director and the chief of staff and the little bit, the vice president, they're going to wonder why he committed to be the environmental president. And he said, you're going to have one real friend, and that's Bush. He said, I know him very well. You're his kind of guy. Lee Atwater told me the same thing. He said, he's in politics for people like you, not people like me. And I, he said, I don't, you know, I live with that. I, I'm okay with that. That's just the way he is. And um, the other advantage you're going to have train said is the press if they like you and he said and they will you'll know how to do that and you, t you need to take them very seriously within a year you'll have the white house exactly where they need to be and that is afraid of you mm -hmm. and so i'm at the time thinking wow this is sounding a little harsher than i guess i was i was still the euphoric for the having taken the position at any rate um 
I did take Crane's advice, uh, and he was correct about the president. We were invited to five state dinners. I would typically be positioned to and told by the Secret Service to cut in on the president after 45 seconds or, or a minute of dancing. And the reason for that was he then wanted to dance with my wife. And we were many social occasions with the president and Mrs. Bush. And he could not have treated us better. I don't think, uh, I'm not sure that EPA administrators had been to a state dinner in previous administrations. The fact that we went to five and my wife was seated next to Prince Philip at the Queen's dinner and next to Vaslav Havel at the dinner for him uh, was a way of showing that uh, he really believed in his EPA administrator and in the the environment. Well, among your accomplishments in that administration was the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. And one of the striking things today in 2022 is those are the last major environmental statutes this country has passed. What is going on? Why have we had such stasis in the political side in America with the statutes gathering dust, the regulations just moving back and forth between administrations? Uh, What's going on here? You know, I spent most of my life and career as a Republican, and Republicans are interested in economic intelligence and national defense in a relatively conservative approach to government spending in small government to an effect and in success. You look back on the statutes that we now see beleaguered by many Republican figures, you have, to, you have to ask, where did they offend? In every single instance that I'm aware of, the anticipated cost of environmental regulation were much, much higher than what turned out to be the case, most notably in the Clean Air Act, where the acid rain title was expected to cost $1,500 a ton of acid removal, sulfur dioxide removal. And in fact, costs less than 200, largely because of the kind of statute that we wrote, which was a market-based statute that rewarded efficiency, and also a a performance statute that actually asked uh, what the effect was rather than what the input was of of companies. It um, took a turn for the ideological, and it was beginning to happen in my period in EPA, that... um, that surprised me. It was. It began, I think, in the Congress in about 1994, under leadership of Speaker Gingrich, who himself. I had a number of luncheons with him, private luncheons with him, in which he was a quite knowledgeable figure, interested in the environment, particularly in natural history. He used to steal away sometimes to go to uh, natural history museums and get private tours. So it it served the interest of uh, elements of the party which were increasingly conservative and there were there were movements that really from the start had very little interest or support for the environment the tea party was one that came later but there were earlier predecessors and gradually the country became more fractured i um, was recently taken by a book the upswing by robert putnam in which he said that In the period 1967 to 73 or so, America ceased being a we community and became an I community. And I believe there's a lot to that. I was in Europe in the army and I came back and in some ways when the school I was attending Columbia was taken over by the Students for Democratic Action or Society, I remember just saying to my wife, I, this is a country I don't recognize, listening to the speeches of the students and of some of the activists. And I think there was, there was always, at least since then, an anti-authority kind of movement, and not just among the right wing, but among the left wing as well, most notably, in fact, in the left wing in, in that era. And it was occasioned Scholars would really say now, historians, by experience with the lying that went on in the Vietnam War, beginning really with the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, in um, the revolutions that occurred, which were 
which were many, which was a, sort of the feminist movements and birth control and uh, the sexual revolution. The drugs became very important to the classes behind me in college. They weren't, they weren't a feature in my college experience, but they became so. And so many, the level of divorces, um, all of those things indicated a culture that was very different. And somehow that was exploited. Those elements in the culture, they were negative elements. And government became less an institution to advance our most profound communal desires and interests. And it became part of the problem. It began with Reagan, that part of it, when he said government is the problem. So I can't really explain it beyond that, other than that it, it did seem to work to create scapegoats and where government regulation was involved. And of course, the environment is is par excellence, a place where you have to regulate in the communal interest, that uh, that became the beleaguered way to criticize the uh, the government. Looking on the in the bigger picture, uh, you served in the military. You attended Yale when, by all appearances, they had a very strong national ethos. What is your sense today? Is some kind of national service something you think that could help this move from, you know, from we to I, or is that a just a chimera? You know, I was in charge of uh, organization and logistics for the U.S. Army Intelligence Europe, and uh, I was filling a colonel slot when I was I was a lieutenant, and then I became a captain, and. I, I had under me a young man, 17, 18, 19, 20, who were some of them scarcely literate and certainly not trained. And I was so impressed that the army turned them into self-respecting, effective operators, people who could drive two and a half ton trucks through the German towns with street signs unfamiliar to them, language that they didn't know, and deliver the ammunition and deliver the food to a remote point in the Black Forest where we were having maneuvers. And I came to have huge respect, both for the Army and for those young men. And I, it occurred to me when Nixon did away with the drafts that I wonder who's going to socialize some of those people now. I wonder how we're going to take them and turn them into what the Army can do very effectively, which is leaders. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's still a question in front of us. And I, I would support very strongly a program that continues to focus in a way that the military did on training, on leadership, on building up character and providing values that are supporting of the broader community. I think myself, we have a very serious crisis in rural America at this time. Um, the town I grew up in has um, lost uh, quite a number of businesses that were good employers. Ridgestone Tire and, and uh, ADM, now the headquarters has moved out and, uh, and Caterpillar moved its facilities and so it, so it went. Well, the consequence of that, or I don't know if it's a straight cause and effect, but uh, the head of obstetrics, the major hospital there told me that almost half of all the women who deliver in that hospital are either on meth or cocaine. Meth if they're from the countryside or cocaine if they're from the city. There's been a collapse of the culture and we really need to address it. And it's in terms of the number of deaths occasioned, the opioid crisis is way in excess of COVID. I wish that we could get some kind of program that would remind rural America that they are not disdained, that they are obviously very important economically and in other ways, and that elites in the coast can identify with them. I think the Democratic Party has done a very poor job, environmentalists have as well, of taking issues in the rural environment much more seriously and taking the sense of alienation there more seriously. I think it explains a lot of what has happened in the country politically, but I would really like to see a specific focus on that area of the economy, of the demography. And um, one way to do that would be a public service opportunity, 
And there are others as well, I think. Educational attention is very sorely needed, especially secondary schools. At any rate, I, um, I believe that all very strongly. And, um, and I don't see anything on the horizon that looks like a corrective. There, frankly, is a large role, in my view, for the church and for religion generally to engage these issues more concretely. I wrote a piece in, a, in America, the Jesuit magazine, two years ago, saying that the church would, had every reason to engage the environment and climate, especially given the papal encyclical, and yet they don't. I never hear it mentioned from the pulpit. And in discussing that with three different pastors, they all said variants of the same thing, that if I were to take on any one of those issues, including immigration, which the church has a terrific record on, uh, my congregants would think, oh, or half of them, he's gone over to the other side. He's one of them. And, and one of them said straight out, he said, I just don't want to turn Sunday mass into a divisive moment for people. Well, I understand that, but that didn't dissuade the church and church leaders from the civil rights era from speaking out publicly and even at some risk, and certainly to take a lot of criticism to do so. I think the church needs to step up to a series of responsibilities that have to do with fundamental ethics and recognizing that the theological implications of Christianity, at least, are very clearly to consider the earth sacred. And as you've done throughout your career in working to help safeguard the earth, you have to think, one has to think internationally. Climate disruption is international by definition. Let's conduct a thought experiment that you might not have picked, but others will pick for you. Let's say William Riley wakes up as president of the United States tomorrow. You didn't have to run. We just put you there. What would you do? Uh, I'm reminded of what, uh, what Bill Buckley said when he ran for mayor of New York, and he was asked, what would happen if he got elected? What's the first thing he would do? He said, call for a recount. Uh, I, um, I think that President Biden did very well in his inaugural address to emphasize the spiritual dimensions of the challenge that the country faced and to call attention to it and to it as essentially a unifying message, one that could bring many people, in, um, evangelicals in particular, who did not vote for him, to respect him and to pay attention to the kinds of things he said and did, because he's obviously not a provocateur and he's, he's, he's a very, he's got a great deal of uh, conviction and integrity. No one, I think, who knows him or has been around him denies that. I think that there is more of that that is needed. And I think a more direct outreach to some of the leaders, spiritual leaders in the country wherever they may be found, is something that could be very usefully engaged and I think could advance other messages that, that are in the public interest. I, I think that the degree of secularization that the country has is, is regrettable in many respects. I certainly understand why separation of church matters and is constitutional, but I think it can be overdone. I think that we, uh, have to recognize that values are to a large extent and for probably most Americans, they are seated in a religious orientation or conviction. And I wish that it was more clear that, uh, as I said, that, that, that the kind of message that the Pope delivered is a message on which all, a lot of people, most people I should think, especially seeing the evidence of climate change and the disruptions that already we have experienced and it will get much worse, um, are, are worth paying attention to and doing something about and in a unifying way. And I would look for ways to engage. I think there's a, there's a very important need in our culture to avoid the kind of language and confrontational exchanges that sometimes are easy to fall into and to pay attention, for example, for someone who is not a Trump person to why people are, because they have their reasons and they're reasonable people and rational people. And to do so with one virtue uppermost in the minds of 
our leaders, and that is respect. I think that there is an absence of respect on the part of each side for the other. And I think it's keeping us apart in ways that are not entirely necessary. And you, you, you may infer from what I have said that I think it's in the interest of many people who do not support environmental laws to understand them and to help make them more constructive if there are inefficiencies in them, which there are, but to do so in a, in a collaborative way. And I suspect that if a movement developed, such as what happened in the progressive era, that changed the value orientation, the sense of what is politically correct, if you will, I think it could be very helpful in this country. And I don't think it's going to happen uh, through legislation. I think it's got, it's got to happen more fundamentally, and it's got to come up from the bottom. One of the great challenges, of course, might be that the United States during our lifetimes has had a historically unprecedented degree of control over our own fate. But that's ending with the rise of China. And some might have thought that the pandemic of the early 2020s could have been made in part a dry run or help provide a template for dealing with climate disruption because they do have certain commonalities. How do we think through how to have diplomacy with China at this moment when they're a rising hegemon in East Asia? I uh, participated in some work some years ago to find out why the rural community in the United States, farmers, ranchers, landowners, real estate people dealing in those areas, so disliked EPA. This is a subject that Bill Ruckelshaus and I used to marvel about. What, what, what exactly is it that occasions such rancor? And as I think about using the pandemic as a template for addressing climate, I'm reminded that what our research into rural attitude showed was that farmers, of course, understand climate change. They know that the uh, the summer comes earlier and uh, and the, and the frost later. They know that um, there are certain kinds of crops which are not growable in certain areas that they used to proliferate in. They don't recognize it publicly because they fear what the government would do with that concession, what kind of regulation it would entail. And so I, I have a sense that the resistance to vaccination, or at least the suspicion that the government may be arrogating too much power to itself, is not something we want to encourage uh, in that part of the, the community, which is really resistant to government, which essentially distrusts government. That um, China is, is a place that it seemed to me, uh, I remember hearing Nixon talk after he had left office, he gave a speech at the Plaza Hotel, and he happened to just drop into the speech. It was a, it had, he had ambassadors from so many countries, including China, present in the front row. He just dropped into the speech. He said, those who disdain China and collaboration with China, he said, I wish they could explain to me how we propose to address the climate crisis without the Chinese. Very simply, and, and that's very true. I think that the kind of rhetoric and vitriol that we heard from previous administration about China, the call by the Secretary of State then to get regime change started in China, extremely pernicious. I think it's a culture and a society we have to accommodate to uh, uh, at least collaborate on the international questions that are most difficult, recognizing it's not our system and there's much about it that, that we don't like. And there are a lot of things that the current Chinese administration is doing, which is making it harder to work with them. But it was quite clear that the Chinese-U.S. collaboration is what made Paris, the Paris Agreement on Climate, possible. And it can again, we, the two countries that themselves can lead on this issue, irrespective of our economic uh, competition. So I think the whole approach to China has to be reconsidered and we have to get to a point where everyone understands that while we have some differences and we'll continue to have them, and some of them are profound about Hong Kong and human rights and the Uyghurs and the rest, nevertheless, we have to expect and encourage the Chinese to work with us on climate.
Well, William Riley, let's ask a few questions about your work and life. We have a number of younger listeners, so I'd like to ask, looking back, what advice might you give the 20-year-old William Riley? Wow. Well, I don't recall that at 20, I had much of an idea what I wanted to be when I, was, when I grew up. Uh, I was uh, a student abroad at that time, and um, I found that my experience with other cultures was a maturing one. And one that left me in a better position, I think, to, well, to assess our national interest and to see where we might do better in certain areas. I can think of any number of areas where I admire the Germans and the kind of society they've constructed, essentially on the same model as ours, the constitutional system, that federal system we created for them. I think that working to find a, a path toward cross-cultural knowledge and understanding is something that's very important. And I don't really know how the universities are doing on this, but I don't think they're doing very well. You know, honestly, uh, I look back at the role that very well-educated people from our best universities had in leading us into three wars where the Leaders themselves admitted upon the conclusion of those wars that we really had never understood the cultures we tried so hard to democratize. We never understood that, by and large, one has to conclude they did not want those people, whether it's the Vietnamese or the Afghanis or the Iraqis, did not want the society we wanted for them. And I remember hearing Robert McNamara particularly say that. He was a very bright guy by all reports. And yet, he said we had nobody who understood the Vietnamese culture, in the, nobody in the government. Well, I had met people in France who understood it very, very well. Graham Greene understood it very well in The Quiet American. Bernard Fall did as well in his writings. And we had you know, Asian institutes at various universities so how, how did it happen that there was a disconnect among the policymakers and a sense really of, of arrogance? Evident, I think, in many respects, in all three of those. If I were 20 and I had some of the experiences now that, that, uh, that I do have, but I, of course, didn't have then, I think I would be very interested in turning out to be someone who tried to understand other cultures and accept their differences. That is something I think that in those wars, we just did not do. And a huge cost often to the people we were trying to help. Are there significant matters relating to your life or work about which you've changed your mind over time? Hmm, there probably are. Um, Vietnam is not one of them. Um, I came back from, from Paris pretty persuaded both that that war was a mistake, that we didn't have the stomach to stay as long as we would have to, given how much pain the Vietnamese were willing to take and had already taken from the French and the Japanese, that they would outlast us. So that's one where at least I think I saw things relatively clearly, and I also was prepared. I had orders to go to Vietnam. I was going to take them. I was. Uh, I thought that's the most patriotic thing to do. The um, changes in my opinions of, I guess that I would, uh, I would have more reservations about the kind of rhetorical justifications that that the that President Reagan delivered so eloquently that I think it had the ultimate effect of undermining respect and uh, for government, not for him, because he he was an exemplary figure in so many ways and a master communicator. But I think ultimately his message, had it been more balanced, would have left a better legacy. I did not think that necessarily at the time. I was for Reagan and voted for him. And um, yet, in retrospect, I am 
impressed by the power of language and particularly its, its power to not just elevate and inspire, but also to lead us down the wrong path and cause us to see the world in a more divisive way. Claire Booth Luce famously instructed John F. Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your single sentence to be? <laughs> uh, I think of uh, I think of what John Kennedy is supposed to have said when he was meeting Jackie for the first time, and she asked him what kind of politician or purpose he he aspired to, and he said, "I'm an optimist without illusions." <laughs> I, I think my own soul is really about leadership and need to recognize that fundamentally we are saved and joy is the only reasonable consequence of that belief. And that if you do what you do with the sense of joy and very often certainly in the field I've been in optimism because it is such a undeniably successful history of the environment in the United States. That's success enough. As we close, are there any topics we've not discussed that you'd like to leave us with today? <laughs> uh, give me about five minutes. I'll think of some. <laughs> <laughs> Would love to have you back sometime. I have a whole list of other topics. I think all of us would love to hear you talk about sometime. You've asked very good questions, Jim. This has been quite well prepared and organized. I compliment you on it. And um, you've stirred me to uh, reflect on things that uh, I haven't revisited for quite a while. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's been a delight to have you with us. And thank you for your ongoing service for this country. You can see all of us your monument in the environmental improvements. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please send me your ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.